This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you and sponsored by the Southern Heritage Trust. I'm Dougal Stevenson. Like most of you, we're on holiday now, and we thought you might like to hear some of our best stories from 2021. In this week's programme, Gregor Campbell looks at the life of a religious conman. Jane Edwards takes us to the farm, which supplied the first frozen meat exports, and then to a nearby historic flour mill. And we hear about the first casualty of Captain Scott's visit to Antarctica. We often associate dodgy religious preachers who beguile their congregations into subsidizing their luxurious lifestyles with the Bible Belt of the United States. But a South Island one, Arthur Bentley Worthington, proved to be a fascination to newspaper columnists in Dunedin around the turn of the 19th century. This report from Gregor Campbell. Arthur Bentley Worthington arrived in New Zealand in 1890, almost penniless. Immediately, he began his stellar career in Christchurch as the most renowned religious conman in New Zealand, at least for the 19th century. The newspapers of Dunedin and other centres were happy to poke fun at Worthington, his wife, his seventh wife, only one of whom had been his lawful bride, his creed, the Temple of Truth, and the gullible people of the city where he plied his trade. One of those who made good copy from the situation was Sivis, of the Otago Witness in January 1892. Whilst on the subject of colonial religions, I may note that a brand new one has recently been started in Christchurch. Its disciples call themselves Students of Truth. They have as Pope or Grand Lama a certain Mr Worthington and a hierarchy consisting, as I make out, of Mrs Worthington, Miss Pearl Worthington and Master Walter Worthington who jointly and severally, on Christmas Day last, laid the foundation stone of a temple dedicated to the Worthingtonian worship. The stone was laid in the name of the Trinity of Light, Love and Truth, and the collection made on the occasion amounted to 45 pounds, 11 shillings, 10 and a half pence. We are without organisation of any kind, boasted Mr Worthington, and without an official, a simplicity of arrangement which permits Mr Worthington to be his own treasurer. The title deeds of the temple, moreover, are made out in Mr Worthington's sole name. It will be seen that the Worthingtonians are a peculiarly guileless and simple-hearted people. What's the odds to us, so long as they're happy? I note, however, that at the Pan-Methodist Conference, a certain Dr Hoss remarkable name, observed that the multiplying of religions was not precisely equivalent to the increase of godliness. Said Dr. Hoss, if any Methodist denomination went into a village in which there was already a Methodist church of another denomination, it made it absolutely unnecessary that the devil should ever be present in that village. Well said, old Hoss. Right you are. If only we could make religions enough it will be quite unnecessary that there should be any devil at all. Sivis maintained his fine form of commentary on the Temple of Truth towards the end of that year. 
Just so, Mr. Worthington of the Christchurch Temple of Truth is accused of peculiar teachings on the subject of sexology. The word is his own, a vile hybrid unknown to science, the invention probably of some Yankee charlatan, and I use it under protest, even within quotation marks. Its meaning? Goodness knows. Nastiness of some kind for certain. These founders of temples of truth, which are to supersede our old-fashioned Christian churches, these hypnotists, theosophists, spiritists, have a tendency to run in this direction. They either invent a quack medicine or put forth pamphlets on sexology, and sometimes they do both. In the Worthington case, developments are awaited with interest. Apparently there is going to be some fun. The Christchurch women, or at least the free Methodist section of them, seem determined to hunt the sexologist out of the place. They have begun by paying him a domiciliary visit in strength and inviting him, with the accompaniment of prayers, tears and texts of scripture, to move on. Not a bit of it. The worthy Worthington is very comfortable where he is and knows when he has a good thing. Cranks still flock to his temple of truth, and probably the collections are good. A little persecution will do him no harm, nay, may even be helpful, and so he is not going to quit Christchurch till he is carried to the cemetery. On the announcement of this heroic determination, the female Methodists retired nonplussed. They could think of nothing better than a futile attempt to disinfect the neighbourhood by surrounding the Worthington abode and holding a prayer meeting. But the end is not yet. I can't bring myself to believe that the Methodist women of Christchurch are going to be beaten. Unfortunately, they don't read Shakespeare, or I might refer them for a hint to the Merry Wives of Windsor. What is wanted is something in the way of a buck basket and a ducking in the avon. Worthington's religious career suffered a setback when his wife, who'd been as gulled as any of the congregation, attempted to espouse a doctrine which he had not approved. The church split, and more good copy came from his next marriage, his eighth and seventh bigamous one. Shortly after this, the temple went broke. The finances, having been raised on a kind of shareholding scheme, had been used by Worthington and those wanting the promised interest were out of luck. The temple itself was auctioned off to an agent of Worthington. The man himself left for his home country to get the cash. He'd be back before long. He was not back before long. He began to ply his trade in Hobart, but amazingly was enticed back to Christchurch again, where he was the subject of the only known occasion when the riot act was read in the city to a mob of about 400 people outside the hall where he had just spoken on September 26, 1897. The return of Mr Temple of Truth Worthington to his old diggings is a sort of inverted compliment to Christchurch, which has not been appreciated. Since you turned me out, says Mr W in effect, I have gone to and fro in the earth and walked up and down in it, seeking new dupes, but finding none. I come back to Christchurch because there are more soft-headed people in Christchurch than anywhere else. In resentment of this left-handed tribute to their sagacity, 
The Christchurch people have gathered in dangerous mobs that need to be dispersed by the reading of the Riot Act. And it has been found necessary to concentrate the whole body of the police, city and suburban, to see Mr Worthington safely home after his Sunday evening lectures. Order must be maintained, doubtless, and the authorities must do their duty. All the same, I regret that this wholesome change of sentiment in re Worthington cannot be allowed some adequate expression. There are American communities in which he would be tarred and feathered and ridden out of town on a rail. Where is the lady who formerly figured as Mrs Worthington and in that capacity officiated at the opening rites of the Temple of Truth? And who is the lady who has succeeded to this honour, who accompanied Mr Worthington when he came back out of exile and who shares his present persecutions? Furthermore, who are the Christchurch softheads that still listen to this sexologist, a precious word of his own coining, and who form the audience at the Sunday evening lectures from which the police have to guard him home? What would happen supposing we were subjected to a Worthingtonian visitation in Dunedin? Are we any better than our neighbours? I trow not! And from this point of view, we may bless the fates that directed the steps of this unsavoury apostle to the city of the plain. Worthington moved to Melbourne, where one of his main sources of ready cash, a gullible widow, made the courageous decision to lay a complaint against him. A Broadway New York lawyer's note paper was discovered to have been printed locally, and the descriptions of a $3 million legacy being probated in the US revealed to be lies. Dunedin newspapers reported the trial and the seven-year sentence while remarking that, had he come to Dunedin, we might have had a temple of truth instead of Christchurch. Worthington's career ended in Poughkeepsie, New York, and his life in a New York prison. By that time, in 1917, Dunedin papers had more important things to report. I'm Gregor Campbell, entirely honest, for Heritage Matters. Between three and 5,000 people a year turn off State Highway 1, just south of Wamaru, to visit two well-preserved historic sites, the Totara Estate Farm and Clark's Flour Mill. Both properties are owned by Heritage New Zealand and are open to the public, except during winter months. Jane Edwards was one of those visitors and has the story of a remarkable period in the history of North Otago the birth of New Zealand's frozen meat industry, and the heyday of flour milling. At the Tortora estate, the voices of actors have been recorded to recreate what it might have been like in the farm's slaughterhouse in the early days. Do you believe they can get this mutton to England good enough to eat? Maybe. Maybe not. Keep it frozen on a sailing ship for three months. And they did do it, nearly 140 years ago, setting in train New Zealand's billion-dollar industry in frozen meat exports. They were the men who ran the New Zealand and Australian Land Company, which in 1866 acquired 15,000 acres in North Otago, known as Totara Estate. According to the Land Company's general manager, William Davidson, Totara was... The gem of the company's possessions, with unsurpassed location, soil quality and productivity 
unbeatable in the southern hemisphere. Totara's sheep flock numbered nearly 18,000 at a time when wool was New Zealand's major export. But in the 1870s, there was a downturn in wool prices. Fortuitously, however, on the other side of the world, there was a growing market for sheep meat. Land Company General Manager William Davidson took note of experiments abroad in shipping frozen meat carcasses. Success coming in 1880 with a shipment from Australia to London. With that, Davidson could see a way forward for Totara. It was only in 1880 that a streak of real daylight appeared when a small shipment of frozen meat landed in London from Australia. I was at once attracted by the outcome of these experiments. It was said of Davidson himself that he had the vision, the driving force and the determination to meet the challenge. He personally took charge of investigations into the feasibility of such shipments from New Zealand and in 1881 arranged to have the sailing ship Dunedin fitted out in Scotland with steam-powered refrigeration machinery and insulated holds. In further preparation for the venture, Davidson instructed Thomas Bryden, the superintendent of the land company and the man on the spot in North Otago, to erect a killing shed in which to slaughter sheep, secure first-rate butchers and in every way prepare for the providing of a cargo of the most attractive classes of sheep. A number of buildings provided the facilities, a timber killing shed, a meat house of wood and stone where carcasses were cooled before being transported, and yards for the pigs which ate the offal. Beginning in December 1881, thousands of sheep were slaughtered at Tortora Estate, sent by train to Port Chalmers, frozen and loaded onto the Dunedin. William Davidson came from Scotland to oversee the new venture and, with Thomas Bryden, reportedly stowed the first carcasses in the Dunedin. On the 15th of February 1882, the ship sailed with close to 5,000 sheep carcasses on board. She arrived in London 98 days after setting sail, and the meat was sold at the Smithfield market over the next two weeks, fetching almost double what it would have sold for on the domestic market. After nine successful voyages, the Dunedin, by now loading meat and disembarking from Omeroo, sailed once again for London in March 1890. This voyage would be her last. She went down in the Southern Ocean, probably after hitting an iceberg, and ship, crew and cargo were never seen again. In spite of this loss, the frozen meat trade continued to flourish and does so to this day. And it all began in Otago with the courageous step into a new venture by the men of the land company. Their story is told today in reenactments, displays and special events at Tortora Estate, where visitors can see the remains of the original slaughterhouse, carcass shed and pig yards, plus other Omaru-stone farm buildings, granary, stables, the men's quarters and the cookhouse. A few kilometres away from Tortora Estate is another fine-looking Omaru-stone building, the four-storey Clark's Mill, owned and restored by Heritage New Zealand. The mill was also once owned by the New Zealand and Australian Land Company and began operating more than 150 years ago using a water wheel and horizontal grinding stones. 
Roller machinery later replaced the grinding stones, but the mill continued to be water-powered until the 1960s. In 1901, it was sold to the Clark brothers, Alexander, David, Alan and Robert, who ran it for the next 75 years, until it ceased operating in 1976. I visited on one of the days the old mill machinery was up and running, restored to working order and still maintained and operated by a committed band of volunteers, a project led by the late Harry Stenson. One of his mates, Roger Blackburn, told me... You have to imagine a certain number of the machines were still in quite good working order, so that wasn't a problem. The main effort was going into making sure the um, the woodwork, the, the chutes and all the other bits and pieces that went with it were became an integral part. So so you ended up with something that uh, was was kind, kind kind of working or had the ability to, to work and show people how it could be operated. So and, and why do you think it was so important to get the mill going again? Well, I think it's, it was really important. But if, if you really think about the the history of this area, history of, of North Otago, at one period it was a real boom area for growing grain, and then it became a significant area of, for the production of, of flour. And at it, it, it some time there were something like thirteen different mills in operation in this area, and now with changes. Uh, most of those mills are no, no longer in operation and therefore it was knowing this was happening it, it was good to have something to represent that period but have it in, in, in like in working order so that visitors could actually see what a mill could do and, and, what, and what happened What do you enjoy most about it? I personally enjoy um, learning about the history and learning about the history of the Clark brothers and who were very innovative not only did they have the mill they, they also um, had a, a quite an important quarry here and and they not only uh, fl- produced flour they produced stone and that, that stone was used throughout New Zealand and a lot, a lot of our civic buildings were stone that came from this area so, so I, w- I was interested in the way these uh, early businessmen came up with solutions, you know, obviously solutions to cash flow and what have you, and the and the Clark brothers were very very good at that, and they and they left us some really good examples of how you could do it. Entrepreneurship. And they were very much into entrepreneurship and and giving it a go. And in actual fact, when they went to buy the mill, they had never had anything to do with flour mills before. So, so they had to learn from scratch and, and, um, and made a real real success of it. When we run the mill, because it's in a, a crafted or wood setting as opposed to plastic and stainless steel, I think they feel that it's like a living organism. It, it, it's, it's got that sort of organic feel about, about it and they can feel the, the vibration of the machines working and, and, and doing their piece. But they, but they also get a, an understanding, or start to get an understanding of the process, and sometimes quite surprised at the at the number of um, activities which are, were, were acquired to convert wheat 
in, into flour. Mm. And, that's, and they often make comments on that. Mm. Clark's Mill will have its machinery running again on Sunday 25th of April and then close from May till September. Totara Estate is closed from June to August. The main sources for this story were Heritage New Zealand and the book Antipodean Empire on the history of the New Zealand and Australian Land Company by Noel Crawford. This is Jane Edwards for Heritage Matters. You can find out about the opening hours and special events at Totara Estate and Clark's Mill on the Heritage New Zealand website. The tragic result of Captain Scott's attempt to reach the South Pole is well known, but a grave in the Port Chalmers Cemetery tells the story of the first death on that explorer's fatal voyage. In the Port Chalmers New Cemetery, there lies an English sailor who came to New Zealand with Robert Falcon Scott and did not continue with him to the Antarctic. The 1901 expedition was an important one, and a ship was specially built for it. As the ship was leaving Littleton Harbour, the captain of the Discovery signalled the captain of the Ringaruma that Charles Bonner, AB, was killed by falling off the crow's nest. Outside Littleton Heads, after the excursion boats had returned, said the press, the warships Lizard and Ringaruma opened up, ready to cheer the Discovery as she passed between them, when a message came from Captain Scott, please do not cheer, a man has been killed by falling from aloft. HMS Ringaruma has passed the discovery south of Littleton and on arriving at Port Chalmers on Sunday gave out the news of a fatal accident to one of the exploring vessel's seamen on the departure of the boat from Littleton. The unfortunate victim was Charles Bonner who was at the time waving farewells to the crowd on the steamers that accompanied the vessel out of Littleton Harbour. It is said that, standing at the main truck nest, the spindle by which he was supporting himself gave way, precipitating him to the deck distance of over 120 feet. He fell clear of almost everything until his head came in contact with the edge of an iron reel on the deck, causing death immediately. When the discovery came alongside yesterday, the blue ensign was flying at half on the mizzenmast, and everyone recognised it as a mark of respect to the memory of the deceased. Later on, the melancholy task of coffining the body, which had been placed on a table on the deck, enclosed by canvas, wrapped in the British ensign, was performed, and, at a quarter to six, the funeral, with naval honours, left the Bowen Pier. The Ringaruma Blue Jackets, with arms reversed, led the way. Then came a gun carriage with the coffin, covered with the Union Jack, eight of the deceased's comrades acting as pallbearers. The captain, officers and crew of the Discovery followed. Then came more Blue Jackets from the warship and the public, among whom were Mr G.L. Denniston, Mayor of Dunedin, Mr John Mill, Mayor of Port Chalmers, and Mr E.G. Allen, MHR. A beautiful floral wreath, sent by the crew of HMS Ringaruma, was placed on the coffin. The body was interred in the new cemetery, the Reverend Mr Cooley officiating at the grave. Quite a gloom has been cast over the vessel by the sad death of young Bonner. He was one of the jolliest and brightest of the sailors and was beloved by them as well as being greatly esteemed by those in authority. One of the latter told our representative that the deceased had been the best seaman on board and everybody from the captain downwards deplored his untimely end. His messmates particularly are much cut up over the affair and their sorrow was plainly evident when the body was conveyed to its last resting place. He was a native of London 
and his only surviving relatives are two brothers. Before the departure of the Discovery from Port Chalmers for the Antarctic regions, the sum of £30 was handed by Commander Scott to Captain Rich of the Ringaruma, the commander of the warship then in port, to be devoted to the erection of a suitable memorial stone over the grave of Charles Bonner, who unfortunately met with a fatal accident on board. The commander of the warship, having been called away with his ship to Auckland, placed the matter in the hands of his worship, the mayor of Port Chalmers, Mr John Mill. Mr Mill has shown the Otago Daily Times a tracing of the shape the monument will take. It is in the form of a marble obelisk, 10 feet high, which will stand on a pedestal of Port Chalmers bluestone. The following inscription will be placed upon the stone in memory of Charles Bonner A.B., one of the Antarctic Exploring Vessel Discovery, who died 21st December 1901, aged 23, erected by the captain, officers, scientific staff and crew of the Discovery. Captain Scott has instructed that room should be left on the monument for the names of any of the Discovery's little band who may be so unfortunate as to perish in the perilous mission upon which they have embarked. The Discovery can be seen preserved at Dundee, Scotland, where it was built. Charles Bonner lies alone in his grave at Port Chalmers. I'm Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. This programme has been generously sponsored by the Southern Heritage Trust. The Trust works to protect the city's heritage, particularly its fine old buildings and all the things that make Dunedin New Zealand's heritage capital. The Trust welcomes new members. It can be contacted at southernheritage.org.nz. That's southernheritage, all one word, .org.nz. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.